Dr. Scott. This is Dr. Scott Bay, your host, your psychiatrist with all the latest mental health related news, bringing you everything about the mind, the brain, human behavior, how to feel well emotionally, how to cope better with stress, how to make sense of media reports on the latest developments into research into the causes and potential new treatments for mental illness, how to rid yourself of bad habits, how to improve your relationships. All that brought to you without the hype and distortion of other media sources with the benefit of 25 years in the practice of psychiatry and along the way trying to reduce the stigma associated with having a psychiatric diagnosis and needing treatment for it also trying to better inform the general public about mental health issues. And welcome again to tonight's podcast. Thanks so much to all of you who are tuning in. Speaking of the unfortunate stigma surrounding mental health issues, that leads nicely into the first two articles that I want to discuss with you this week. First one is an annual survey that is done by Michigan State University about mental health attitudes, about the public's attitudes about mental health issues. And still, the survey finds widespread ignorance and stigma, but at least it's getting somewhat better. Less than half of Americans can recognize anxiety. Less than half. Most people don't know what to do about depression, even when they spot it. It's no wonder that so few people with depression actually get the help that they need. And nearly 8 in 10 don't recognize prescription drug abuse as a treatable problem. Nearly 80% don't know there's treatment for that. That is outstanding and remarkable in an extremely negative way. Those are just some of the findings of a new national survey on issues surrounding mental health literacy by Michigan State University scholars, which the survey is designed to help communities think about how to address behavioral health challenges as they emerge, whether that's drug abuse, anxiety, or other issues, and the challenges such as suicide that can accompany them. The National Survey examines mental health literacy on four major issues, anxiety, depression, alcohol abuse, and prescription drug abuse. This work doing this survey and tabulating the results is funded by the United States Department of Agriculture and the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, otherwise known as SAMHSA, that is an agency within the United States Department of Health and Human Services and administered by the National Institute of Food and Agriculture within Agriculture Department. Not sure how to account for how that falls under Agriculture Department, but uh, in any case, the government did pay for the survey. So it was web-based and it involved nearly 4,600 total participants. 
The survey aims to give officials and policymakers a better understanding of where to target education and prevention efforts for major societal issues, such as prescription drug abuse. Public health officials are calling the opioid epidemic, which killed more than 33,000 people in 2015, the worst drug crisis in American history. According to the survey, 32% of all respondents were unable to identify the signs of prescription drug abuse, which include taking higher doses than prescribed, excessive mood swings, changes in sleep patterns, poor decision-making, and seeking prescriptions from more than one doctor. Those percentages were even more concerning for people aged 18 to 34. That is, 47% of that group could not correctly identify signs of prescription drug abuse. And among men of all ages, uh, it was 44%. So not sure why women are better at identifying that than men. And the article doesn't mention any speculative uh, explanations for that. Although great strides have been made in the area of mental health literacy in recent decades, the authors write, the discrepancies in mental health knowledge, helping behaviors, and stigma show the importance of continuing to educate the public about mental health issues. Well, it's one thing to not be able to recognize the signs and symptoms of anxiety if you've never suffered an anxiety attack or what we medically speaking call a panic attack. It's very hard to understand what someone having one is going through, just to give you one example. But to not be able to understand and recognize when someone has a problem with prescription drugs, that's pretty frightening. And uh, so I think the public health agencies need to do a much better job educating the general public about what are the signs and symptoms of addiction and also the fact that there is treatment for it and to encourage people to seek treatment for it encourage people to, in turn, encourage their family and friends and loved ones to get treatment for these problems. So I hope that's going to be one outcome of the results of this survey. And the next article I'm going to talk to you about tonight is an example of how discrimination against people with mental health problems continues in this day and age in a somewhat insidious way, in my opinion, but in the admittedly somewhat narrow population of those who seek bariatric surgery. Uh, bariatric surgery is a group of certain surgical procedures with the goal of helping someone lose weight. There are less drastic less invasive or disfiguring surgical procedures like the gastric banding or the gastric sleeve designed to just decrease the size of the stomach and make it hard for people to eat more than just a little at a time. And then there's the more drastic, more extensive surgical procedure, the gastric bypass. And 
these procedures are very helpful. Uh, they have been shown to enable morbidly obese people who are extremely and severely overweight to lose a great deal of weight, uh, 100 pounds, 150 pounds is not unusual. And the health benefits are very well documented. They're huge. They can uh, literally cure diabetes and also reduce blood pressure, reduce risk of heart attack and stroke, all the consequences that are associated with being overweight and obese. Um, literally can be cured. But it turns out that while most people might have to undergo a psychological screening before having bariatric surgery, uh, the screening is much more extensive and detailed for people who have a history of any kind of mental health problem, and especially for people who have a major psychiatric syndrome and take medication for it. Now, people with pre-existing mental health conditions had nearly identical results in weight loss after bariatric surgery as compared to those with no known mental health conditions. This uh, research was published in the journal called Obesity, the scientific journal of the Obesity Society, and this is the first large-scale study of its kind to examine the relationship of preoperative mental illness to weight loss and healthcare use after bariatric surgery. It's very reassuring to know that even those with pre-existing mental health conditions can lose the same amount of weight from bariatric surgery than those who don't. And hopefully this will call into question the need for so much screening and psychological evaluations and clearance before bariatric surgery. Um, it is fairly routine for one of my patients to need me to write them a letter and send it to their bariatric surgeon clearing them for the procedure. Uh, the documentation has to make clear that neither the diagnosis that I treat them for nor the medications that I prescribe for them will preclude the patient from being able to fully understand and appreciate the risks and potential benefits of the bariatric surgical procedure and also certify that they are psychologically capable of complying with post-operative aftercare recommendations and that includes basically having to relearn how to eat. Um, when you've had that type of surgery, you can't eat the same amounts and same frequency that you used to. Uh, not just what you would expect as far as specific nutritional guidance. Uh, without that letter, uh, a patient of mine would not be able to get a bariatric surgeon to operate on them merely because they have a psychiatric diagnosis and need treatment for it. In my opinion, that is not justified, and I'm glad to see now there is data to back up that mentally ill people are no different than anyone else and will lose the same amount of weight as those who don't have a psychiatric diagnosis. Many clinicians are hesitant 
to consider bariatric surgery in the mentally ill population due to this erroneous assumption that they will not fare well. This research fortunately counters those assumptions, showing no difference on average in weight loss in the mentally ill versus the non-mentally ill population. No prior research has evaluated this research question in a large and detailed study group. While all potential surgical patients should receive a thorough evaluation prior to considering surgery, this research suggests that there appears to be no outright reason to deny consideration of bariatric surgery in patients with mental illness who are otherwise good surgical candidates. We'll be right back after this break. Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare, but for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call, and I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose, and with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. Did you miss the show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on americaswebradio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on americaswebradio.com anytime you like. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key and the trained staff at EHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, Dr. Scott Bay, bringing you all the latest mental health-related news. We're talking about the tendency for bariatric surgeons to require extra psychiatric clearance from patients with mental health problems prior to giving them bariatric surgical procedures and how recent research documented that this is unnecessary and I would argue discriminatory. Researchers reviewed electronic health record data 
from over 8,000 adults with and without mental illness from several healthcare systems across the United States in 2012 to 2013 to study weight loss and healthcare use patterns after bariatric surgery, including post-surgery emergency department visits and hospitalization days. The study divided patients with mental illness into three groups, one with mild to moderate depression or anxiety, two with severe depression or anxiety, and three bipolar disorder, psychosis, or schizophrenia spectrum disorders. In the study, the groups were compared on weight loss and on all-cause emergency department visits and hospital days up to two years after surgery. The results concluded that mental illness was not predictive of differential weight loss up to two years after bariatric surgery. The findings suggest that this powerful weight loss tool can be equally effective for different groups of patients regardless of pre-existing mental health conditions. The majority of patients in this study came from systems where patients were psychologically screened prior to surgery. They, uh, authors claim that this supports the use of such screening to identify clinically stable patients. Importantly, patients with preoperative mental illness were observed to have higher use of the emergency department and the hospital after bariatric surgery, a finding that may have clinical implications and requires further study. Those with mental illness, even in its more severe forms, can experience significant weight loss after bariatric surgery and that it is similar to the weight loss seen in patients who do not have mental illness. The current findings suggest that healthcare providers need to strongly consider bariatric surgical procedures for their severely obese, mentally ill patients who are in a period of relative stability. Well, it remains to be seen whether this research will lead to any less intense scrutiny of the mentally ill prior to having bariatric surgery, whether it will lead to doing away with the necessity of psychological screening. But for now, um, I anticipate I'm still going to be writing those letters that I mentioned in the segment before the break, so that if any of my patients need bariatric surgery, they're going to need a letter from me clearing them to have it done first. Next up on tonight's podcast, a huge article for the first time documenting that a grandmother's health habit can affect the outcome of their grandchild's mental health. Um, Other such data may exist, but I certainly haven't been aware of it up until now. This is indeed to me a startling finding, and it has to do with autism. Now, autism is a very frustrating disorder. We don't know what the cause or causes are. There are many things that are associated with it, 
uh, but nothing we can nail down and say, okay, well, this one thing causes autism. There seem to be several things. In many cases, we don't know what the causes are. There's no specific medication to treat it, only a few medications that may help manage the symptoms of it, but the side effects of those medications are very severe. And not only that, there is a lot of poisonous and false information that unfortunately a lot of parents have seized upon as far as what are the causes of autism. The most insidious and false and absurd of these ideas is that childhood vaccines cause it. There's actually zero proof of this whatsoever. It's been proven to be false time and time again. And it was promoted by a physician whose research was bound to be a fraud. It was retracted by the journal it was published in. And he was... Uh, he had his academic uh, rank uh, taken away from him, yet these ideas persist. So autism then is a very important field that needs to be studied in order to give people more solid, definite answers about what is wrong and what does cause it. This research that I'm going to tell you about is done by scientists from the U University of Bristol, and they looked at all 14,500 participants, pretty good number, in the Children of the 90s study and found that if a girl's maternal grandmother smoked during pregnancy, the girl is 67% more likely to display certain traits linked to autism, such as poor social communication skills, and repetitive behaviors. The team also found that if the maternal grandmother smoked, this increased by 53% the risk of her grandchildren having a diagnosed autism spectrum disorder. So let's break this down a little bit. We're talking about a woman who is pregnant, smokes while she's pregnant, her daughter, in turn, goes on to give birth to a daughter, and that granddaughter has a much higher risk of autism because the grandmother smoked while pregnant with the girl's mother. This is remarkable. Uh, I, have, again, have not come across any research prior to now documenting that uh, you can increase the risk of problems like this in your grandchildren. Now, these discoveries suggest that if a female is exposed to cigarette smoke while she is still in the womb, it could affect her developing eggs, causing changes that may eventually affect the development of her children. Further research is now needed to find out what these molecular changes might be and to see whether the same associations are present in other groups of people. Unlike the analysis of autistic traits, which was based on over 7,000 participants, the 177 diagnosed with autism spectrum disorder were too few to analyze grandsons and granddaughters separately. 
This discovery was published on April the 27th in the journal Scientific Reports, and it is part of an ongoing long-term study of the effects of maternal and paternal grandmothers smoking in pregnancy on the development of their grandchildren, who are all part of this Children of the 90s study. By using detailed information collected over many years on multiple factors that may affect children's health and development, the researchers were able to rule out other potential explanations for their results. The incidence of autism spectrum disorder has increased in recent years, and while some of this increase is undoubtedly down to improved diagnosis, changes in environment or lifestyle are also likely to play a role. The researchers also stress that many different factors, including genetic variation, are believed to affect an individual's chances of developing autism spectrum disorder. Past studies of maternal smoking in pregnancy and autism spectrum disorder in children have been inconclusive. Going back a generation has revealed an intergenerational effect, which interestingly is most clear-cut when the mother herself did not smoke in pregnancy. That runs counterintuitive. You would think that if a mother exposed her developing fetus to a toxin, that would lead to an increased risk of problems, whether it's something like ADHD or autism spectrum disorder or some other child developmental problem. But they're finding it even if the grandmother smoked while pregnant, but the mother did not. The reasons for this are not entirely clear. One of the paper's authors says, in terms of mechanisms, there are two broad possibilities. There is DNA damage, that is genetic material damage, that is transmitted to the grandchildren, or there is some adaptive response to the smoking that leaves the grandchild more vulnerable to autism spectrum disorder. And they have no explanation for the gender difference, although they have previously found that grand maternal smoking is associated with different growth patterns in grandsons and granddaughters. More specifically, we know that smoking can damage the DNA of mitochondria. Mitochondria are in the, in every cell, in the nucleus of every cell. Uh, they are the power plant, if you will, of the cell. And they are only transmitted to the next generation via the mother's egg. The initial mitochondrial DNA mutations often have no overt effect in the mother herself, but the impact can increase when transmitted to her own children. Another author added, We already know that protecting a baby from tobacco smoke is one of the best things a woman can do to give her child a healthy start in life. Now we found that not smoking during pregnancy could also give their future grandchildren a better start too. They have started studying the next generation of participants, so eventually they should be able to see if the effect carries down 
from the great-grandparents to their great-grandchildren as well. We'll take another commercial break here and continue our discussion of grandparent transmitting risk of autism spectrum disorder and other mental health issues right after this break. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. Did you miss a show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like. Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare, but for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call, and I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose, and with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist with all the latest mental health-related news. Right now, we're talking about some important research that may give us some insights into the development of autism spectrum disorder, uh, a rather provocative finding, I think, that if uh, a grandmother smokes while pregnant with her daughter, that daughter is more likely to give birth to a girl with autism spectrum disorder. Now, another of the study authors commented, we still do not know why Many children develop autism and behaviors linked to it. The associations we observe raise intriguing issues on possible transgenerational influences in autism. Future research will help understand the meaning and mechanisms behind these findings. The National Autistic Society website contains a wealth of information about autism and details on how and where to seek advice. 
It's a good suggestion. I'm sure there's a U.S. equivalent. Remember, this study was done in the U.K. And finally, another scientist commented, uh, someone from the Autism Science Foundation in the U.S. said, To date, research into the causes of autism has been limited to studying maternal or paternal exposures during pregnancy. By utilizing a birth cohort in the United Kingdom, scientists are able to go back a generation to examine the role of grandparental exposures, presumably through mutations and genetic modifications. Hopefully, grandparental exposures will continue to be investigated to better understand this mechanism. And I dare say this is groundbreaking enough to where this idea of going back a generation may be applied to other disorders as well. Quite fascinating. Uh, I'll certainly be sure to bring you more findings uh, as they continue to investigate this problem. And in general, again, uh, this also fits in with the overall mission of clearing up myths and misconceptions and misunderstandings uh, about mental health problems, uh, including the erroneous idea that childhood vaccines cause autism, one of the most insidious lies um, ever perpetrated uh, by a medical researcher. Now, the previous article talked about the dangers of smoking and autism spectrum disorders. Let's uh, now discuss an article about the effort to make it easier for people to quit. Now, um, more than 35 million Americans are trying to quit smoking. Smoking cigarettes causes 480,000 premature deaths each year, due mainly to a twofold risk of cardiovascular disease and a 20-fold risk of lung cancer. In a commentary published in the current issue of the American Journal of Medicine, researchers from Florida Atlantic University reassure clinicians and their patients that Chantix is a safe and effective drug and a safe and effective way to achieve smoking cessation, and that failure to use this drug has caused preventable heart attacks and deaths from cardiovascular disease. The following will explain that. In 2006, Chantix was approved as a safe and effective means to quit smoking and achieved permanent quit rates of approximately 25%. Now, I understand 25% quit rate doesn't sound like very much, but... All I can say is, if you've ever been a smoker or you are one, you understand that that's quite a success rate. That's quite successful. Um, if you've never been a smoker, you probably think that's not a very successful treatment. But as treatments for smoking go, 25% quit rate is quite good. Now, in 2009, Chantix received a black box warning from the Food and Drug Administration based on their adverse event reports of neuropsychiatric symptoms like depression and thoughts of suicide. 
let me explain this. The Food and Drug Administration is responsible for drug companies having to put the warning label on their medication with all the information about the drug, uh, how it works, how it was studied, what are the side effects of the drug, how it's supposed to be used, how it's not supposed to be used. And uh, the label is something you can get a visual of if you've ever seen uh, samples of medication in this paper folded up multiple times to this wad of paper in tiny print with incomprehensibly technical language in it. That is the label. Now, what is a black box warning? Well, when the Food and Drug Administration feels that there is a potentially very serious side effect that may happen to some patients with a medication, but it's not something that would preclude allowing the drug to go on the market, they put various levels of warnings in the label. The most serious warning meant to encompass a serious type of side effect is called a black box warning, so-called because if you look at the label in print, they put a black line, a black border around the text that includes the warning, hence black box. Now, as far as the increased incidence of depression and suicidal thinking in people taking Chantix, there were plausible alternative explanations, including that nearly half of the subjects had psychiatric histories, 42% were taking psychiatric medications, and about 42% were suffering from depression. Nonetheless, since then, there has been a 76% decline in the number of prescriptions dispensed from a peak of about 2 million in the last quarter of 2007 to about only 531,000 in the first quarter of 2014. And this situation is quite typical. If the FDA puts a black box warning on the label of a medication, all of a sudden doctors are reluctant to prescribe the medication because they're afraid if something happens to their patient, if there's a very negative, severe outcome, uh, they're going to get successfully sued for malpractice because there was this black box warning and they prescribed the drug to their patient anyway. Likewise, uh, patients who look up information about the medications their doctors prescribe will note that there's this black box warning and decline to take it. So there you have the situation where soon as the black box warning was put on Chantix, the numbers of prescriptions dropped drastically. Now, in their commentary, the Florida Atlantic University researchers emphasize that until recently, the totality of randomized evidence on Chantix had been restricted to eight small trials, which did not demonstrate a hazard. The researchers caution that the reliable detection of small to moderate risks and benefits of drug therapies requires cogent data from large-scale randomized trials designed to test the hypothesis. 
such a large randomized trial was recently completed that included both apparently healthy individuals as well as those with severe mental illness. The trial was conducted for 12 weeks on about 8,000 long-term smokers and included equal subgroups of those without as well as with psychiatric disorders. In subjects without psychiatric disorders, those treated with Chantix had less neuropsychiatric symptoms, and in subjects without psychiatric disorders, there were no increases in these symptoms. Both groups of participants assigned at random to Chantix achieved significantly higher abstinence rates from smoking after 12 weeks <clears throat> compared to those assigned to an inert placebo, a nicotine patch, or Welbutrin, which is another medication to help people quit smoking and by coincidence happens to be an antidepressant. And it was just several months ago that the Food and Drug Administration, under a lot of pressure from researchers who didn't find this association, agreed to remove the black box warning from the label for Chantix. The existing totality of evidence suggests an urgent need to increase the use of Chantix in the general population as well as in those with serious mental illness who on average die about 20 years earlier than the general population in part because their smoking rates may be as high as 75%. Quitting smoking significantly reduces risks of cardiovascular disease beginning within a matter of months and reaching the non-smoker status within a few years, even among older adults. For lung and other cancers, however, reductions do not even begin to emerge for years after quitting, and even after 10 years, quitters achieve death rates only about midway between the continuing smoker and a non-smoker. For reducing risks of cardiovascular disease, it's never too late to quit, but to reduce risks of cancer, it's never too early. The authors speculate that if the use of Chantix had not plummeted by 76% following the black box warning in 2009, perhaps 17,000 premature deaths from cardiovascular disease may have been avoided each year during the last few years. Public health efforts and effective cessation treatments, including behavioral counseling and medication, have resulted in a 14% decrease in smoking in the United States, while the rates are markedly increasing in developing countries. So there you have it, another case where a black box warning cost many, many lives as opposed to saving them. Nice going FDA as usual. We'll be right back with more after these messages. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. 
Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. Did you miss the show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like. This is Dr. George from Peachtree ENT Center. We've won patient care awards and have the highest patient recommendations because we believe in practicing medicine the old-fashioned way. Practicing good medicine is based in listening to the patient and making a care plan that is individual. The best medical care is given when there is a strong doctor-patient relationship built on mutual trust and respect. At Peachtree ENT Center, we believe in taking care of the whole patient because healing is more than writing a prescription. Whether you have problems hearing, have frequent throat or sinus infections, from the time you call our office and speak to a real person, you will be treated as an individual and not as an ailment. During your visit, you will not be rushed and all your questions will be answered. When possible, natural treatments will be recommended to fix the problem. If surgery is recommended, cost-effective, minimally invasive treatment for snoring, sleep apnea, or sinus problems will be offered because Peachtree ENT Center is where patient care counts. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today, once again with your host, Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist with all the latest mental health-related news. You know, in the intro to the show, I talk about wanting to help people get rid of bad habits and we were talking in an earlier segment about smoking and how Chantix was underutilized and would have saved a lot more lives um, and things about quitting smoking by taking that medication. Drinking alcohol too much is another bad habit that people can have. And <clears throat> it's always been my observation that there's a strong correlation between people who suffer from social anxiety disorder, um, or the medical terminology, social phobia, and alcoholism. This has been borne out by a lot of research. If you take a population of alcoholics, most of them will have gotten there from social anxiety. What happens is the person with social anxiety finds out at a very early age and stage in life that after a couple or a few drinks, the severe anxiety they suffer when they're around other people in social situations pretty much melts away. And instead of dreading going to the party and wanting to find excuses not to go or wanting to find excuses to leave as soon as they get there, they can at least be able to stay and have a good time and maybe even become Yes, I am going to say at the life of the party. So it was with great interest then that I saw this article 
I want to review with you. It says that anxiety is a stronger harbinger of alcohol problems than stress. And I also want to know what they meant by their distinction between anxiety and stress. So let's see what they found. This is from the research side, sorry, the research society on alcoholism. Stress and anxiety are widely believed to contribute to drinking. Alcohol is thought to reduce tension caused by stress. That's the classic fight or flight response, as well as alleviate the unpleasant symptoms of anxiety, which is the anticipation of the unpredictable, impending threats, or in other words, worrying. So that's what they mean by anxiety versus stress. Stress is the classic fight or flight response. Anxiety is worry, apprehension, fear. Prior research, however, has yielded inconsistent findings as to the unique relations between stress and anxiety on the one hand and alcohol consumption and alcohol use disorders on the other hand. This study was designed to examine how differences in self-reported levels of anxiety, anxiety sensitivity, and perceived stress impact the frequency and intensity of drinking, alcohol craving during early withdrawal, and alcohol craving and stress reactivity. Recent drinking was assessed in 87 individuals, 70 men, 17 women with alcohol use disorders. That sample obviously extremely skewed as far as gender. Uh, this is probably because if you're looking in population of those with alcohol use disorders, it is going to be skewed uh, men more so than women. Three distinct measures were used to evaluate anxiety, anxiety sensitivity, and perceived stress. A subset of 30 subjects was admitted to a medical center to ensure alcohol abstinence for one week. Measures of alcohol craving were collected twice daily. On day four, subjects participated in a public speaking math challenge before and after which measures of cortisol and alcohol craving were collected. Let's go over that a little bit. The public speaking or math challenge, what is that all about? Well, clearly that's designed to provoke anxiety and or stress and thereby measure if either of those things or both will increase cravings for alcohol. And cortisol, <clears throat> why measure that? Well, that's our old enemy, the stress hormone. And so that's why they're measuring that along with alcohol craving. They're trying to tie together the whole story as to uh, someone's sensitivity and reactivity to anxiety or stress and how that affects their cravings for alcohol. Now, in this group of heavy drinkers, Measures of anxiety, as compared with measures of perceived stress, were more strongly associated with a variety of alcohol-related measures. 
while alcohol studies often use the terms anxiety, anxiety sensitivity, and stress interchangeably, this study showed the importance of differentiating among the three terms given their unique relationships with drinking, craving, and stress reactivity among individuals with alcohol use disorders. So while the results are somewhat esoteric to be sure, um, I think it is clear that anxiety, specifically a sense of worrying, anticipation of the unpredictable, uh, fear of impending threats, that is actually more strongly associated with alcohol cravings and tendency to abuse alcohol than is stress, which would be just be the fight or flight response. Um, that would be comparable to someone having a panic attack, for example. Whereas being in a social situation uh, or having to work math problems might trigger the type of anxiety that someone is more likely to self-medicate with alcohol. <clears throat> now, interestingly, I found another article related to alcohol to talk to you about. For years now, there has been uh, a lot of research documenting cardiovascular benefits of moderate alcohol use. Uh, red wine in particular seems to have gotten a lot of good press as far as things like lowering cholesterol levels, preventing or decreasing the incidence of heart attack and stroke. And, you know, I freely admit I've not been happy about this at all because as a psychiatrist and someone who used to treat a lot of people with alcohol and drug addiction problems, the last thing that people who tend to abuse alcohol need to hear is that it's healthy for you. This feeds into their denial about having a problem with alcohol and gives them carte blanche to keep drinking when clearly abuse of alcohol is not healthy under any circumstances. And then you have just the very fact that many people with psychiatric problems have to take medication for it on a daily basis and alcohol and those medications don't mix. The combination can be extremely dangerous, can lead to seizures, cardiac arrhythmias, confusion, falls, blackouts, um, increased risk for DUI, just to name a few things. So I've always felt that it was very irresponsible for doctors, including cardiologists, to say, oh, well, you know, there are cardiovascular benefits from drinking alcohol. Have a couple. Uh, it's irresponsible to make that recommendation without carefully taking into consideration other factors in a patient's medical history, including whether they have any mental health problems or taking any medication for it. So here is a study that says moderate drinking is associated with a lower risk of several, but not all, cardiovascular diseases. It was a large study of UK adults published by the British Medical Journal on March 22nd. 
the finding that moderate drinking is not universally associated with a lower risk of all cardiovascular conditions suggests a more nuanced approach to the role of alcohol in prevention of cardiovascular disease is necessary. Moderate drinking is thought to be associated with a lower risk of developing cardiovascular disease compared with abstinence or heavy drinking. In the UK, moderate drinking is defined as no more than 14 units or 112 grams of alcohol a week. That would be up to two drinks a day to put it in more easily understood terms. To put this into context, one unit of alcohol is equal to half a pint of ordinary strength beer, lager or cider, or small pub measure of spirits. There are one and a half units of alcohol in a small glass of ordinary strength wine. So the measure we use in this country is one wine, one beer, one shot of liquor. They all have the same amount of ethyl alcohol in it. There is, however, a growing skepticism around this observation, some experts pointing out several shortcomings in the evidence. For example, grouping non-drinkers with former drinkers who may have stopped drinking due to poor health. So researchers set out to investigate the association between alcohol consumption and 12 cardiovascular diseases by analyzing electronic health records for 1.93 million healthy UK adults. All of them were free from cardiovascular disease at the start of the study. Non-drinkers were separated from former and occasional drinkers to provide additional clarity in this debate. After several influential factors were accounted for, moderate drinking was associated with a lower risk of first presenting to a doctor with several but not all cardiovascular conditions, including angina, heart failure, and ischemic stroke, compared with abstaining from alcohol. But the authors argue it would be unwise to encourage individuals to take up drinking as a means of lowering their cardiovascular risk over safer and more effective ways, such as increasing physical activity and stopping smoking. Heavy drinker uh, increases risk of first having such diseases, including heart failure, cardiac arrest, and, and stroke, compared with moderate drinking. So the authors are saying... Heavy drinkers won't necessarily go on to have a heart attack in the future, but they're less likely to have this as their first diagnosis compared with moderate drinkers. Well, we're going to have to wrap up tonight's show on that note. Hope you have a wonderful stress-free week until we get together next time. But if not, then you need to call Dr. Scott. Good night and thanks for listening. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening.